Uh, Pastor Bill will be preaching for us this morning, entitled the sermon entitled "Jesus' Heart for the Hard-Hearted." I'll be reading from the ESV. This is God's word. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, "Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath?" And he said to them, "Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry?" He and those who are with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who are with him. Have you not heard this? And he said to them, "The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered, withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, "Come here." And he said to them, "Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill?" But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, and he grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And then the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Good morning. It's good to be back with you all this week. We had opportunity last week to go visit our daughter, and that always gives us opportunity then to visit a different church. I always appreciate seeing the larger kingdom, but it's a little bit like. Uh, when you come back to your house, this this is home and this is family, and so I'm very glad to be able to worship here with you all today. Glad that you are joining us virtually as well. If we haven't met yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the Book of Mark today, and we are finishing up a section within the Book of Mark where antagonism has been building against Jesus. This antagonism started in the beginning of chapter 2, where the religious leaders were judging Jesus. Quietly, they're doing it in their hearts, but they're not happy with the kinds of things that he's doing and saying. And that quiet, under-the-surface animosity has grown less quiet over the next several sections. Pastor Dwight helped us to see that last week, as these religious leaders start peppering Jesus with questions. Not because they want to learn from him, but because there is an implied critique within their questions. They don't like the things that he's doing. This week the gloves are off, the implication is gone, the critique is now out in the open. And so they ask him in verse 24, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they doing what's wrong? And more importantly, Jesus, why are you letting them do what's wrong? Or they're even more overtly critical. Chapter 3, verse 2, they're looking to accuse Jesus. That word accuse, a very technical term, means that they are building a case. They want to bring serious charges against him. And so what are they doing there in the synagogue that morning? They are not there to worship God. They're there to collect data, to collect evidence so that they can mount their case against him. Jesus understands that. He calls this man forward who has a withered hand. He intends to heal the man, but first he turns to the Pharisees and he asks them, 
if it's lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath. And you realize in that moment, he knows. He knows why they're there. That they're looking to trip him up. They have no heart for God in that moment. They only have a heart to ruin him and his ministry. Put yourself in Jesus' position. Can you imagine how exhausting that had to be? To know that people are always watching you. Not because they want to learn from you. Not because they want to see God's goodness through you. But they're studying you. To see where you're going to take one step wrong so they can shut you down. I know some of you know what that feels like. You've had that at work. Some of you have had that in your extended families. You've shared those kind of stories with me where people have created their own idea of what is right and wrong and that they're using that idea to judge you, to look for places where they think you're wrong. And you can imagine there are two easy options in that moment, right? The option one, you just sort of pull back. You keep your thoughts to yourself. You go under the radar. You think, you know what, if, if I back away, Maybe they'll leave me alone. Or, or at least I'll give them less ammunition against me. It's option one. Option two, you become hard-hearted yourself. You decide if they're not going to care about you, you're not going to care about them either. That if they're going to hate you, you'll do the same with them. Both of those options make complete sense, and Jesus does neither. He's not bitter. He's not allowing the Pharisees' attitude to drive him off. He's definitely firm with them, and yet what? He's still talking with them, still engaging with them, relating to them, trying to persuade them, trying desperately to reach them. You look at that and you think, why? (laughs) Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just quit and give up? What is it that keeps him engaged with hard-hearted people? And I want to draw our our attention to two things today. The first is that Jesus has a resource. He has this external thing that he relies on that he believes he can appeal to so that they also can believe something different. He has an external resource, and he has a life that is shaped by reliance on this external resource. That's good news for us because we have access to those same two things today. We have access to this resource. We have access to the ability to be changed and shaped by it. Today, just two points, <clears throat> a lot of subpoints, so hang in there, take good notes. But just two, good, two points today, this resource and the life that comes from relying on it. First, Jesus has a resource. He has an Archimedean point, if you'll allow me to use that language. What's an Archimedean point? The Greek mathematician Archimedes, a couple hundred years BC, once said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. A fulcrum is a fixed point that doesn't move, and it's a place that you put your lever on, you stick one end under the thing that you want to move, and as you press down on this other end, the lever rotates around the fulcrum, if the fulcrum is fixed. And Archimedes recognized if you can get a fixed point and a long enough lever, you can move anything. And in the realm of ideas, then, an Archimedean point means that you have an unassailable starting point, something that is fixed, something that then serves as the basis for all of your other arguments. And this fixed starting point is something that takes you out of the realm of opinion, out of what I feel and what you feel, out of what I think and what you think, 
And it brings us both out of relativism to something that is independent, something that's objective to both of us, something that lets us see what is true and what is not true. And Jesus has one of these. He has a fixed starting point that he can appeal to that has a chance of moving the Pharisees to a better place, a place where they'll be more concerned with God's agenda than with their own. Let's see how this works in his life. The issue in these two accounts, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, the issue in these two accounts is all about what is lawful, about what you can and cannot do, and specifically what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. That word lawful keeps showing up. So you see that there in verse 24, the Pharisees claim that what the disciples are doing is not lawful. Jesus counters their argument, verse 26, by saying that what David did was only lawful for the priests to do. And then chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus asks the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? The two passages turn around this issue of what is lawful? What is lawful to do on the Sabbath? And as you focus on that word, you realize that there are two definitions in play here. That's the heart of the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. They see the issue one way, Jesus sees the issue a different way. Now, if you were here when we went through the Sabbath this past winter, you remember that we learned that God tells us to keep the Sabbath holy. But he doesn't give us a lot of regulations on how to do that. And we learned basically that keeping it holy has something to do with worship and something to do with resting from work. Pharisees felt that that was not specific enough. It wasn't clear enough as to what they were supposed to do and not to do. And so they added an additional 39 rules and principles, trying to define exactly where is that line between work and rest. And so they had principles for how far you could walk on the Sabbath before it became work, how many stitches you could sew in a garment, how many letters you could write. And when they are referring to lawful, they're thinking about these additional 39 rules. I want you to notice first what Jesus does not do in engaging them. He does not say to them, okay, you know what? This is just a simple matter of perspective. You have your viewpoint, I have mine. We'll just agree to disagree. He doesn't do that. And that's important because there are times when you can do that with issues in the faith. Theologians recognize that there are matters of the faith, things that we call secondary issues, on which true believers can see things in a slightly different way and yet call each other brother and sister, recognize that we are still part of the same family because despite those smaller differences, we're still operating out of the same faith. Jesus looks at the Pharisees, however, and says, this is not one of those kinds of things. This is not a secondary issue. What you are calling lawful, what I am calling lawful, is not simply a difference of perspective, matter that we let go of and believe that we're basically working in the same circles for the same things from the same outlook in life. Instead, Jesus challenges their definition of lawful, and he does it by going to his Archimedean point. He does it by going to the scripture. He says, verse 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest 
and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. What is Jesus doing here? He's taking the Pharisees' concern for lawful, and he says, let's not start with your perspective. Let's not start with your definition, your list of 39 rules and regulations, but since you claim to speak for God, to tell us how to live according to his law, let's ask God how he thinks about what is and isn't lawful. And look, when we do that, we find a situation where your perspective, your definition of lawful does not line up with his. Now, maybe a little bit of background would be helpful here. The bread of the presence were 12 loaves of bread. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They were laid out each Sabbath in the holy place before the presence of God. And it was bread that the priests were allowed to eat, but only the priests were allowed to eat it. And yet, very clearly in Scripture, we learn that David ate it. He was running at the time from King Saul, who wanted to kill him. He was hungry. The priests offered him this special bread. Now, here's Jesus' point. Not only did he eat it, but you know it because it's in Scripture. God put it there in Scripture, recorded it. Have you never read this, he says. And it's recorded there along with a number of other things that David did in his life. Some of those were good. Some of those were bad. And in Scripture, God confronts and rebukes David for the ones that were bad and he never rebukes him for eating the bread. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, here's a case where someone does what is not lawful, where he breaks the ceremonial law, not the moral law, but the ceremonial law. And not only does God not rebuke him, God preserves this activity in Scripture. Now, haven't you ever read that? In other words, Jesus is saying no one reads that passage and says, yeah, Here's another place where David sinned. He should not have eaten the bread. He should have just been content to be hungry at that point. Instead, we all look at that and we say, okay, David ate the special bread when he was hungry, and God was okay with that, which tells us that there is a nuance within the mind and the heart of God as we understand what he means by lawful, that there are times when there are competing issues at play, where there are, in this case, where human need and a ceremonial form of worship collide. And when that happens, you're going to have to sacrifice one to the other. You're only going to be able to meet one of those conditions. You cannot satisfy them both. And this account of David tells you that from God's perspective, in that case, human need wins out. In God's way of thinking, according to his law, meeting the human need gets priority. And Jesus is basically saying to the Pharisees, this applies to how you should understand my guys picking grain on the Sabbath. And so he reaches back into the scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 21, where this account is recorded, and he applies it to his present moment in life. And by doing so, he's arguing that the Pharisees have created a completely entirely different way of understanding lawful. That they actually have a different priority in view than God does. That they are using law differently than God is. Now let me just take a moment, an aside for a moment and ask, do you see why it's so important that you have to be in Scripture? that you have to be reading it. 
You have to be studying it. You have to understand it. Go read 1 Samuel chapter 21, and not once will you find the word law in there, lawful, anything to do with law whatsoever. And yet it's this passage that springs to Jesus' mind when the Pharisees charge him with letting his disciples do unlawful things. Jesus knew how to read the scripture and understood how it connected to his own life. It was his fixed point that let him navigate life with all of its challenges, including when he was challenged by hard-hearted people. And you need that same fixed point. You need that same resource. You need it not in your phone, you need it inside of you. You need to be able to ask when you are challenged by something, how does God think about this? What has he given me in scripture that helps me see this from his perspective, that helps me think about it from his perspective? And the Pharisees are not asking that question. They're not asking that question because they're asking a different one. They want to know, how do our 39 principles shape what we see? How do our 39 principles shape how we think about what it is that we see? They see exactly the same thing that Jesus does. Hungry disciples picking heads of grain on the Sabbath, and their minds do not immediately go to Scripture and start scrolling until they hit 1 Samuel chapter 21. Instead, they dial up their 39 principles, and they start scrolling through them until they get to the one that prohibits reaping on the Sabbath. And then they see that situation through that lens. And they conclude that the disciples are what? They're doing something unlawful. They are sinning. And Jesus says, no, you're wrong. You've missed the point of law. You are working out of an unbiblical system that you have overlaid onto the scriptures. And it's blinded you to what you could have seen in the scripture. It's blinded you to what you should have seen in the scripture. You're using the word of God differently than God does. Your perspective is wrong. Now let me take another aside here. Because what Jesus is doing in this passage can be very difficult for us to hear in our modern age. In the realm of ideas, modern people are what? Myself included. We're largely relativists. We see the value of recognizing there are multiple, multiple perspectives on life, each having something to offer, and so we are a little uncomfortable with absolute truth claims. We're uncomfortable, uncomfortable with saying someone is just, abs, uh, uh, just wrong. We owe part of that discomfort to people like the French philosopher and historian Michel Foucault. Foucault is arguably one of the most influential social theorists of the last half century, ha has just had an enormous impact on the humanities and social sciences. And of the many things that Foucault studied, he's noted for uh, investigating the relationship between power and knowledge, and specifically how societal institutions not only communicate certain perspectives, certain truths, and truths for Foucault is in quotes, certain truths that they communicate, but he claims that they actually create those perspectives. Oftentimes they do so unwittingly, unknowingly, but they create these truths and they do so for the purpose of social control, to maintain their power and to organize people in the way that they want to. So for instance, Foucault will say things like, quote, 
truth, and again, puts truth in quotes, truth is linked in a circular relation with systems of power which produce and sustain it. And truth is linked to effects of power which it induces and which extend it, unquote. What is he saying there? He's saying that systems of power create certain truths that in turn give those systems even greater power. Now, Foucault did not say that knowledge is power. He's more subtle than that. He's more saying, as Mark Henderson would frame it, that truth claims are a bid for power, that people use their power, either knowingly or unknowingly, to promote certain ideas, to make other people do what they want them to do. And there's something to that, right? Isn't that what the Pharisees are trying to do here? They grab onto that word lawful. It has all of its God connotations. And they use their idea of lawful to try to coerce Jesus to change how he lives. There is something to being wary of truth claims. But maybe we should also be wary of taking this argument too far. Because if you say that all truth claims are a bid for power, isn't that a truth claim? Isn't that also a bid for power? Isn't that an attempt to say that certain ideas about truth are invalid before we ever have the conversation? In that sense, it might be the ultimate power grab. To say that you can only believe the truth is relative, that there is no objective truth, that we all appeal to, that we all have to live by, that we all have to listen to. Isn't that the ultimate attempt to control the conversation, to limit the terms of the conversation before it begins? To say that we can only talk about the kinds of truth that I consider truth, not an objective truth that is true for all of us, but we can only talk about subjective truths that are socially manufactured. Truths that, what? that I can safely ignore. That's the kind of conversation we can have, one that has no external authority that I have to listen to that I have to acknowledge. And if you tell me that there is one, then I can turn around and say, oh, that's just you making a bid for power over me. Do you see how that's the ultimate power grab? To set the parameters of the conversation before we start? Jesus is not afraid of that argument. He says, no, there actually is an external truth. It's the word of God to which we all have access to which we all have to listen. That's what lets him say to the Pharisees, you're missing the point. You don't see the world like God sees it, and that means you're wrong. Jesus is not afraid to say that. We have to learn how not to be afraid to say that as well. That's the same point that Jesus makes in chapter 3 by using the same resource, by using the scripture. Hard to see in our translation, but his question to them in verse 4 Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? That's a question that takes you back into Scripture. It takes you back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. And that's a passage that talks about what is the point of the law. And the point of the law is to do good that is linked with life, and that if you ignore the law, you end up with harm that's linked to death. And so if you're committed to saving life, you are also committed to doing good because they come as a package deal. 
the Pharisees had ripped that package apart. They had another rule, a rule that if you saw someone in trouble on the Sabbath, you could do whatever was necessary to preserve their life, to save their life, but then you had to stop because anything beyond that point was considered sinful working. And so they're there in the synagogue watching Jesus to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath, to see if he'll do some kind of work that is not, in their minds, absolutely necessary. Because for them, law is what? It's about restricting yourself, about not doing anything wrong, about shrinking the boundaries down. That's their view of the law. It's the way that they believe that they can show God that they're good people. Because what? We have not done bad things. We've kept ourselves from sinning. In other words, their movement with law is inward. It's this constant assessment. Am I doing all the right things? Am I doing good? Am I not working on the Sabbath? And Jesus tells them that's not the point of the law. You have taken something beautiful. The law of God, it's all about life. It's all about goodness. And you have created from it a system of do's and don'ts that has nothing to do with him. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying there's a very different understanding of the law. He recognizes that God gave his law when? After he rescued his people. That God was not good to them because they were good people. Instead, God was good to them and then gave them the law. He gave them the law before they knew what goodness looked like. And so in Jesus' mind, the law is not a way of showing God how good you are. It's showing you the kind of goodness that God is. The law comes from a God who moves which direction? He moves outward. He moves to help. He acts on your behalf. He didn't move to rescue the Israelites for his own sake. Instead, it was for theirs. Does the same thing with us. He moves outward. He loves you. He sets you free. So that what? So that now you can have a life like he has. Not one that is collapsing inward, but one that reaches back out to love him and reaches out to love other people. Jesus' view of the law, the Pharisees' view of the law, are incompatible because they move in opposite directions. When you're concerned with God saving you, you move outward toward him toward others. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's not what you're doing. When someone stands in front of you with all of their needs fully exposed, hungry disciples, crippled man, you don't see that as an opportunity to move toward them like God has moved toward you. And that's because you're too caught up making sure that you're keeping all of your rules. You're too busy building your own record of goodness to have anything left over to think of God's kind of goodness. Your religion, your idea of lawfulness has nothing to do with God. That's why it's not something we can disagree on. Because there's actually two different faiths that are taking place here in these very short accounts. And the Pharisees completely understand what Jesus is saying. They refuse to answer him. They sit there, verse 4, silently. It's not a good silence. It's not the silence of conviction. It's not the silence of consent. It's a hard-hearted silence. They don't want this view of the law. They want their own. Which kind of gives you and me a dilemma. 
because here we have two competing truth claims. Two claims to authority that will impact how you think about life and that will impact how you go about living. Jesus knows it. He's pointed it out. The Pharisees get it. You and I get it. But how do we know which one of these to believe? How do we know that Scripture is so certain that we can bet our lives on it? So reliable that we can confidently turn our back on trying to prove our own goodness. Now, there are a lot of ways we could jump outside the Scripture and talk about why it's something that is true and, and reliable, trustworthy. Those things are things you should study. You should learn them for your own sake. But if we just stay in today's passage, there are two things here that are compelling, that give us confidence in the Scripture. The first one is to recognize that Jesus treated God's Word as absolutely infallible. Something that is so true that when you are challenged personally, you can run to it and know that you're going to find an answer there, you're going to find a solution, you're going to find a foundation that you can stand on. That it is going to function at both the big picture level, it's going to give you that grid through which to look and understand life, it's going to function at the nitty gritty level, down to the level of can we pick heads of grain on the Sabbath or not. And the fact that Jesus believes it's true is reason enough for me to believe it and reason enough for you to believe it. Why is that? No one else has ever claimed to be God and proven that he is like we've already seen in the book of Mark, like we're going to continue to see. And no one has ever done any more for you than he has. More for you than you can do for yourself. He put your needs in front of his own life. He dies for you in your place so that you can live forever with God. And when he does that, what does he do? He gives you a reason to trust him and to trust how he sees life. It's a reason that is so good that when he says scripture is this fixed, stable point that you can appeal to in all situations, when he says that, you can believe him. You believe the scripture because you believe Jesus. It really is that simple. That's one reason to believe scripture is true. Here's a second. It's a slightly different kind of reason. And the second one is to ask, when you have two competing views of life, which one produces a better life? Which one makes you a better person? Which one leads you to being more fully human? Because whichever one that is, is probably more true than the other. It's more in tune with who you are as a human being. So when you look at the Pharisees, what do you see coming out of their lives? They have their own system, their, their, their own faith. What comes out of it? You see people who would let other people starve and go hungry. You see people who would leave crippled people crippled, even if it's for just one more day. You see people who, in order to be good in their own eyes, are willing to let others suffer. Who have to let others suffer. Who have to let others pay so that they can think well of themselves. That's pretty ugly. That's just what passively comes out. That's what they would allow. Take a look at what comes out actively. Actively, they're judgmental. They call other people out. They publicly embarrass them. They think the worst of people. They are 
in the public square looking for ways to catch someone doing something wrong. That is their approach to life in general. They can't admit when they themselves are wrong, they sit there silently. And while they will not extend themselves to do good for someone on the Sabbath, they will, verse 6, go out of their way to make plans to destroy someone on the same day. They refuse to save life, they are willing to kill. These are not good people. Their system of self-salvation, of proving that they are good people, their system is not working. And they seem blind to that fact. They're hardened to their own hypocrisy. These are not people that you want to be like. These are not people that you even want to be around. Their philosophy of life does not work. On the other hand, look at Jesus. What do you see coming out of his life? What do you see his reliance on the scripture actually producing in himself? This is point two. What do you see him doing? He's counseling people, he's teaching, he's using illustrations that they'll understand. He is pouring himself out for people who hate him. Nothing's getting through. The more he tries, the harder they dig in their heels, the more they oppose him. Under those conditions, what do you see come out of him? Not under ideal conditions. Under those conditions, what do you see? What do you see when he's opposed by religious hypocrites? He responds, verse 5, by looking at them with anger. He's angry, but what kind of anger is this? He's not furious. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. Not out of control. Not raging, not destructive. Does not use the divine power that he has to destroy them. Instead, verse 5, he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He's angry, but he tempers his anger with grief. What's that tell you about him? That he's angry because they thwart him? He realized, no, he still heals the man. He still does what he planned to do. They did not thwart him. He's angry because they disagree with him and disrespect him. No, he's grieved for them, not for himself. He's grieved because their hardness of heart is getting in the way of what would actually be best for them. He's upset. Why? They're ruining their lives. And he would give them something far better. How many other truth claims produce that kind of character? That kind of person? How many other philosophies generate grief inside of you for people who reject that philosophy. Jesus is not engaging the Pharisees here in a naked bid for power, for control that's going to put him on top. He's pointing them to what's true. Why? Because he's concerned for them. It's an amazing use of power. Our world thinks that power is used to convert your enemies to your point of view or to marginalize them so you just don't have to deal with them to organize the world to have it the way that you want it. And Jesus does not use power in that way. I think this is how we answer the Foucauldian challenge that Jesus, in appealing to scripture as true, is simply perpetuating some kind of institutionalized power play. His reliance on scripture does not produce that kind of person in him. Look instead at how he uses his power 
doesn't use it to gain control over other people or over their lives, doesn't use it to make his own life easier. When he's done exercising his power in the synagogue that day, Pharisees are still there. They still hate him, and they still do so in public. He doesn't remove them with his power. He doesn't end their hating. He does not use his power to control them. He uses his power to control himself. To be angry and not crush at the same time. To be angry at their hard-heartedness, yet grieved for them. To continue engaging them throughout the rest of his ministry. To keep trying to enlighten them for their sake. That's what relying on the scripture will do for you as well. That's the kind of character that it will produce inside of you. How many other perspectives, how many other philosophies promote that kind of response? How many others urge you, call you, insist that you love your enemies even when they remain hard-hearted? When they're resistance is plain and obvious that calls you to be grieved for them in the moment that they're hating you. How many other perspectives, how many other philosophies not only urge you to love your enemies, to be genuinely grieved for them, but also give you the power to actually live that out? What you see in Jesus is truth and power that you can trust that you can trust to treat you well when you're not good. This is the kind of truth that you want to learn. This is the kind of power that you want to have. The power to master yourself in the face of animosity. The power to care about others who do not realize the danger that they're in. You see Jesus' heart displayed in the scripture for people who hate him. But frankly, you saw that heart the moment that he considered entering the synagogue. He already knows that the Pharisees are out to get him. We've been seeing that all through chapter 2. They've already proven that. He went into the synagogue anyway, knowing that at some point he's going to be challenged again. He actively put himself in places knowing that he'd be hated there. Not because he enjoys the conflict, but because he knows that people needed what he had to offer, that they needed the word of God that they had ignored, that they had twisted. And what he does there in the synagogue is a small little example of why he came to earth in the first place. Realize God already gave the scriptures to humanity long before the Pharisees were ever born. They already had the scripture. They already had access to everything that they needed in order to see the errors in their approach to life. They didn't use it well, they misused it, they distorted it. God saw all that, understood all of that, and didn't say, oh well, you don't like what I have to say? Fine, that's, that's on you. You'll have to deal with the consequences of twisting what I've said. God did not say that. God also didn't say, man, maybe they need a little bit more, but I'm going to stay up here. I'll just write another letter and send that down to them. He didn't say that either. Instead, God decided, I'm going down. I'm going to live with them. The problem is not in what I said. The problem is in them. They misunderstand my words because they're hard-hearted. 
They don't trust me. So they come up with their own systems, their own ways of living, even though it produces really messed up people. That upsets me. But I'm not going to hold myself off. Even though they've decided to distance themselves from me, I refuse to return the favor. I'm going to come even closer to them. I'm going to come close enough so that they can actually hear my voice. And I'm going to speak more, not less. I will keep teaching, even though they keep refusing to hear. And I already know that, which means I'm going to have to do more than just talk. Words are not going to change their hearts. I will give myself into their hands. They will plan to destroy me, and I'll let them. He tells his disciples that numerous times. And I'll do that because I'm determined to do good to my people, not harm. My people are also hard-hearted, and I will save their lives, not kill them. And so Jesus came to this earth and came to the synagogue in order to give life. Not just to try to persuade with his words, but to atone for our hard-heartedness. Which is good news. Because if you know yourself, you know you have some of that in you. I have lots of that in me. We're all stubborn. We're all hard-hearted against God in various ways. We all take his words and use them in different kinds of ways. And Jesus, instead of pulling away, comes closer. So if your heart is hard this morning, if you've refused to hear what God has to say in all of its entirety, if there are passages of Scripture that you don't like, if there are passages that don't fit into the way that you want to think, passages you pass over, explain away, just ignore, don't go to, refuse to read, please know this morning, you're among friends. We all have those. None of us embrace God's law in the same way that he gives it. And all of us need what? We need Jesus to come near us. In our hard-heartedness, not just to talk to us. We do need that. But to remove our hardness so that what we gladly embrace, everything that he has to say. And the good news this morning is that not only are you among friends, but you have a God who's not put off by you. You have a God who will come to you who will use his unlimited power on your behalf. He will lay his life down. If your need is suffering and you need that relieved, this is the God to come to. He came to do good and not harm. But he also came to engage those with hardened hearts. So whatever your need is this morning, please come to this God and ask him to meet it. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did come to this earth, that you did not hold yourself back from us. Lord, that your heart was not hard toward us. Lord, for the many ways that we have pushed aside sentences that you've written, verses that we've come across, chapters, whole books that we don't like. Lord, you came to soften our hearts, to give us a receptivity to your words that longs for them. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that for myself and for my brothers and sisters this morning, that we would love to hear your words. And Lord, that you would do more, that you would give us the same character from which those words sprang, that you would give us the character that you have that moves outwardly, that is not so self-focused that we miss you and we miss the people that you've called us to care for. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.